Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Data Lab podcast. My name is Thanos Tiaras and I'll be your host for today. Our today's guest plays the guitar and pets dogs when he's not coding. But most importantly, he's the technical lead for the synthetic data project at NHS NSS, where he works as a senior information development manager. Ewan Gardner is investigating the use of machine learning methods for high-quality, low-level, synthetic medical data generation. Thanks for joining us, Ewan. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, to start with, I assume that not everyone knows what synthetic data is. So, would you mind uh, giving us a broad definition of what this is about? So, there are there, there are a few different forms of synthetic data, but realistically, the sort of common theme between all of them is it's data that, in some way, looks like the original has the original labels, and we're also looking for the additional aspect around it being statistically similar to the original data. You can use non-statistically similar. It's used a lot in, for example, DevOps and development to test systems. We are sort of hoping to go the next level so that you can begin to train models or run statistical analysis on them. Mm-hmm. And I guess this concept applies to various uh, modalities of data, right? Could be images, could be could, could be tabular data, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the big sort of push for synthetic data, I would say, really kicked off in 2014 with Ian Goodfellow's paper on GANs, um, which there's been a lot of research into the image-based domain. It naturally lends itself better to the neural network architecture. Uh, recently, you've got Google applying it to sound and waveforms with their uh, Pixel CNN, Pixel RNN networks. And recently, some of the work that we've been doing is based in some research at the likes of MIT that have looked more into the tabular form. Um, so there's, there's a lot of really, really interesting usage around it, and each modality presents its own challenges. Interesting. So could you give us a higher level overview of the, the, the synthetic data project at NHS NSS? Um, what kind of problem is it trying to solve and what was the inspiration behind it? Really the, the major problem that we're trying to solve is safe, secure access to high quality data. Uh, we hold, the organisation itself holds and maintains vast quantities of exceptionally useful information However, I think if we put the First Minister's medical records online, I think people would be rightfully upset. So we can't just release this information, but we get requests a lot from our Aegis service who work closely with researchers around applying data, linking data, gaining access. Um, A lot of the time it takes a fair amount of time. There's a lot of safeguards in place. There's a lot of information that needs to be processed. So what we're hoping to achieve with synthetic data is to, in some way, release a synthetic cut-down version of the data to researchers or coders to really develop their method, to develop their code, so that when they do come to Idris, they've got a much clearer idea of their idea, their code's clean and ready to go, um, as, as well as handling some of the complexities in the data as well. The, the data is very well maintained, but there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in medical data. There's a lot of complex terms and relationships. So 
another aspect to the synthetic data is we're hoping to have it train the sort of next generation of data scientists as well, or anyone that's interested in data. And the, the inspiration was purely by chance. My line manager one day sent me an interesting paper on a technique, sorry, a methodology called MedGAN, which was synthesizing medical data in tabular form. And we looked at it, and the more we read into it, the more we realized, actually, this might be a way of, in some way, allowing people access to information in a safe, non-restrictive way. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So um, the data that you are currently working uh, with, how, how does it look like, just to get a better idea of what kind of data you're, you're dealing with? So in Scotland, we have what's termed the Scottish Morbidity Records, and they're a series of large data sets that comprise different aspects of health. So, for example, SMR6 is also called the Scottish Cancer Registry. It primarily deals with anything to do with cancer, any incidences. SMR4 is to do with anything surrounding mental health. The one we are currently working with is one of our most requested, um, it's kind of like a top 10 hit in the data world, is SMR1, which is hospital inpatient activity in Scotland. And there's, there's two ways of interacting with the the data in the table form, there's episodic and stay level. So whenever you enter hospital in Scotland, if you're admitted in some way, you gain an initial episode. And then if you change consultants, move to a different bed, any any significant clinical event, these creates other episodes that basically track you through the hospital stay. And then when you leave the hospital, you're given a final episode that neatly ties everything together. That's episodic form, and stay level, we aggregate that information to basically summarise your stay in hospital. What were you diagnosed with? How how long were you in hospital? So it's essentially condensing the episodic history into each person's stay as one record. So the way that the data looks, we're currently using it in stay form, um, just to remove the time series aspects, it's only phase one. Is it contains variables around demographics, so it's things like age, sex, um, health board of treatment. So we wanted to include some aspect of geography, but we're also cognizing the fact that this is our first attempt at it. So we want we didn't want to go down to postcode level if we even could. Um, my models are good, but they're not that good. <laughs> it, it already sounds like your data is quite detailed and you're dealing with low-level information rather than just um, aggregations of entire data sets. So that should enable um, researchers potentially to, to dive deeper into the data and make um, more interesting discoveries. Uh, absolutely, and that's, that's where the second half of the data set comes in as we've purposely tried to keep as many diagnoses and alternative diagnosis codes in as we can. So you'll have a main diagnosis that you, every hospital, you have to have a reason for being logged in the system. You might also have, make man with a broken leg, then end up with an infection. That then comes out to an alternative diagnosis. So we have main diagnosis and three alternative diagnoses. And we also have length of stay. And there, there may be a few other additional variables added in, 
So it's not the first data set won't change the world, um, but we are hoping that there's enough in there to really give researchers that first sort of push out into it. I mean, we, we've gotten somewhere in the region of about a thousand um, main diagnoses. So this is it's it's uh, it's the first time I've seen synthesis done in this sort of detail in our data. Uh, you know, preserving both the demographic and diagnostic information. Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, tell us a bit about about yourself. So, I know you have um, a background in neuropsychology. So, what was your journey from there to working on this project? So, like my code, I don't do things in a very easy manner. Okay. Uh, I initially started out in psychology undergraduate through at Glasgow Caledonian was destined to become a forensic psychologist, ended up working in a prison. Turns out I'm not very suited to that environment. <laughs> so I came out, um, worked around a few places, ended up in neuropsychology through uh, Edinburgh. And a massive thanks to both Professor Adam Moore and Karina Konstantacheska of the Data Lab because they were the ones that introduced me to our programming language, to statistics, and this is probably why I don't get invited to parties anymore, but I really, really enjoyed statistics <laughs> and programming. Um, and so, so from there, it sort of took off. I got into machine learning. My supervisor, Alex Dumas, really helped me. I created a brain-computer interface to read people's brain signals through EEG to control a text-to-speech machine. Um, there was some wavelet denoising theory in there as well, which was really cool. And uh, Ronnie Vegan and Alistair, I forget I forget the name, I do apologise, they, they, they were incredibly helpful. So ended up working for the NHS and local intelligence support team, or LIST, where I was based out in the community. And I ended up bumping into my current line manager. We got talking, I ended up working for two days a week and the unit um, around you know strategic development and then was lucky enough a post came up ended up here and which started out as a two day a week sort of ah, isn't synthetic data interesting to the last 12 months of non-stop development so here we are sounds like an exciting journey um all right so um going back to to the project and uh, I would like to hear a little bit more about the technical aspect of it. So what does the, the final product look like? I know it's not, um, your solution is not at the final stage. You have done some experiments that were really good and you got some very interesting outputs. So I was wondering what is the algorithm that runs behind that solution and what does the output look like? It's really, really good question. Um, there are two main outputs. One is the synthetic data file itself, which how, why, where and what we release with that is several pay grades above my own. Um, in terms of the actual algorithm itself, we are planning to open source it and put it in GitHub and it'll be out in January because um, I want people to look into it. But the algorithm itself is it's a mixture of probability theory and GPU-boosted random forests. So when I was looking through the data, trying to synthesise it. I was using some other methods, really, really good, but unfortunately they were getting stuck around about 60 to 70 factors. The the really well-designed methods are just, no one's really kind of had done the high cardinality 
data. So I made two observations that made the algorithm kind of a really take off. The first is I could synthesize demographic information relatively easily. Um, there's not some super complex inverse quadratic um, relationship between where someone lives, what age they are. It's It can be best explained by conditional probability, which is why the algorithm synthesizes conditional probability, the demographics using conditional probability. When it comes to the diag- comes to the other variables, so example diagnosis, the second observation that really helped was I could build a giant random forest and burn millions of pounds in AWS credits or, or servers and have a giant unwieldy model or I could in some way actually group the data down. So that's where the second half of the algorithm is, is that people specify columns of interest and it then lets the algorithm group into groups of 10, between 5 and 10 we recommend. So what you're then doing is, is you'll take a subset of your data, you'll synthesize the demographics, it'll just learn the conditional probabilities, it's you know, not groundbreaking, we've been doing it for a few hundred years. Then it will train a random forest on the real data, the demographic plus a target variable, which lets its diagnoses. Then it comes down to the synthetic data that you've created from the demographics, which is just a case of you know, sampling. It then We then feed that into the random forest, which then, because it's been trained in real data, outputs a prediction as to what it thinks is the best answer. So that that's really the, the core of the algorithm. And we found that not only was it beneficial computationally from rather than trying to build a, a random forest for half a million people with a thousand different categories, when we were taking people in groups of about 10 categories for their conditions, you know, the demographics can vary as needed. We found that the accuracy went up as well. Um, it's, it's, it's something I, I never really appreciated, which is the more categories you have, the more difficult softmax, gumball softmax becomes in terms of your final output. Um, so that, that that's really how it works. And then the algorithm is designed to just output a file for you. So in terms of a user, I really want this to be accessible to anybody. You don't need a, a computer science background to, to work it. I've built in a lot of default, semi-sensible parameters around it. Um, so if you're a user, you'll just be shown a text file. You'll enter the names of columns. There's a, a walkthrough guide on how to go about doing it, what the different parameters do, and then you can execute it. If you're more comfortable with the theoretical side, you can alter how many iterations of the tree, what GPUs do you want this deployed on. Um, and the, 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 there are things in there uh, as well. We also built privacy into this. We take it quite seriously. Um, so, for example, we threshold it. So, if you if you've got a low count condition, for example, let's say diabetes, it's it's a fairly common condition in Scotland. So that in of itself is not really that disclosive. However, if you have a six month old with diabetes, that's exceptionally rare. So when I was designing the algorithm, I thought rather than trying to synthesize extreme edge cases like this, we set a, a sensible threshold that iterates over the data and removes people from groups. 
until every group has a minimum of N members within it. We also then add in differential privacy. Um, now, the cryptographers and statisticians in the audience may possibly write to me in very angry terms, but we, we adopted a more broad sort of usage of it, which is when the demographic information, the probabilities are being sampled, we flip a coin, heads or tails, and then if it comes up heads, we sample from a Laplacian exponential distribution to add noise. It's a minimum amount of noise, but it's enough to perturb the raw probabilities so that you've removed low count conditions and now you're also perturbing the probability slightly just to make reverse reversing the data to the original, I would say, nigh on impossible. And that is, I guess, an answer to, to someone who might be a little bit um, worried that, that well, because the input to your algorithm is data from, um, from actual people like me and you, uh, one might worry that, well, what if your algorithm essentially copies that data and produces the, the you know, um, as gives us an output the information of an actual person. But I guess what you just explained um, is, is the answer to that, that this is very unlikely to happen. Absolutely. And there's also, that that's why we have the various precautions in place is that we're thresholded out low-count extreme cases because... From a probabilistic view, if there is, excuse me, if there's only one six-month-year-old in the data set, then the algorithm will, you know, that's the correct answer is you sample six-month-year-old at this with this age with this um, health board, that you know, so it's 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 that's purposely why we that's purposely why we uh, went with a more traditional sort of algorithm around probability in the GPU is we had much more control and we can perturb it. We're also working closely with our information governance team. So Dr. Richmond Davies, um, who's not only an excellent human being, he's also been integral to the project. So we've been taking advice around, to me, we've thresholded, we've removed conditions, but is there another factor we may not have looked at? So rather than doing rather than just simply building a product and throwing it to information governance and going, ha-ha, make, you know, make sense of that. We instead really wanted to work closely with them because this is sensitive data and we really are... We're trying to balance the needs and wants to the research community of the data community with the, the absolute rights of people, which is why we are... It's only certain conditions that we're allowing through above a certain count it's, why we're employing differential privacy. It's also why we're open sourcing the code as well as I want the the community to really look in, absolutely take apart the the methods. I mean, even within the differential privacy, the heads and tails coin flip changes. So as you go more and more into your data above certain thresholds, so say you need 75% of your groups, it then alters to be 80, 20, for example, in terms of add noise, and the amount of noise goes up simply because the smaller the counts are, the more likely it is to overfit, um, the more likely it is to produce an exact copy. So in January, we're also beginning to look at an internal evaluation. We actually have an analyst who's previously worked with synthetic data, who's looking at not only the data quality, 
but is there exact records coming through? Is there any problems from a privacy aspect? So it's interesting that you mentioned there um, the quality of synthetic data. So I was wondering, how do you measure the quality of a synthetic data set? Because if we're talking about a synthetic image data set, I can see how a human could visually inspect the data set and say that, okay, this image looks like a real one or not. But what is the case with tabular data? It's a really interesting question. There are a few different ways of approaching it. So you can do traditional statistical methods using things like Kullback-Leibler divergence or Jensen-Shannon divergence. You can also do things like Hellinger distance from the continuous. So one of the, the, the most used metrics and something that's really, really good um, is Wasserstein distance or Wasserstein, my pronunciation's horrendous, that's I do apologise, <laughs> which is, is also called Earth Movers Distance. It's a really, really good solid metric. You can also do things like PMSE, which was Joshua Snoke out of the Rand Corporation, which I believe was a 2018 paper, as a really interesting measure. However, it's difficult to do... It's difficult to do a comprehensive analysis, so most of the measures is column A versus column A in the synthetic and real, or you can do column A and B in the synthetic, column A and B in the real, and sort of look at the differences in the metrics. We're still developing our methods around that. However, my colleague, German Pre has developed an exceptionally interesting visualisation suite, even though he does like HTML, which I can't forgive him, but he's he's written an exceptionally interesting library that's in conjunction with this project that we're hoping to incorporate into the algorithm as well that's designed to make these things much more visual so you can do a visual inspection. So one of the, the methods he's developed is a clock face method. So you can do cross tabs fairly easily. It becomes difficult when you have health boards and main diagnoses. You've got 14 health boards, a thousand different diagnoses. That's that's a fair size table. Indeed. So what this method will do is it will show you, for example, the top 10, the mid and the bottom 10 counts of conditions. And the way that the clock face works is if it's to the left of six o'clock on the face, your reel has less of a count than your synthetic and vice versa. Interesting. So is that uh, visualisation tool being made open source as well? That's also being made open source. So although it complements this project and it has been incorporated, it is very much its own separate suite. It's something that, that German and I have been really interested in because German loves visualisation, uh, sit more in the analysis. So the interesting challenge is for the machine learning community, how do we actually present and capture the sheer volume of information we have. So we're, we're really hoping that this additional project as well is, is of interest to the community. Great. So um, everyone who works in, in the field of machine learning knows that um, machine learning projects are a process of essentially trial and error, right? You you have to do things and fail in order to, to achieve something good. So uh, and you mentioned that you tried a few different methods, and I know that you did some experimentation with GANs. So I would be interested to uh, to hear a little bit about that. How much time do you have? Uh, well, um, <laughs> we have quite a lot of time, but I was hoping to get like a, a short um, short overview of the the GAN based approaches you 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 tried. 
Uh, absolutely. So we initially did start out with traditional statistics. And b- before I go into the foray and GANs, I-, I would certainly like to say that there, there is this divergence in the community around the two extremes of deep learning is everything and anything and will solve everything and the other sort of group that says, oh, you only need a, a linear regression. You know, use the right tools. A linear regression will work in a lot of cases. Don't know if you've ever tried to apply it to image or sound data. It's quite difficult and doesn't really end. But equally, a deep neural network that can identify medical images and classify them isn't necessarily going to give you any major insights into, you know, a few thousand rows of data. So that that's, although we did experiment with deep learning and then went to statistics and then sort of met somewhere in the middle, it is important to remember that use the right tool for the job. Don't call a plumber to fix your roof and then be upset when the plumber can't fix your roof in the same way that don't apply the wrong tool statistically. So in terms of our GAN, Generative Adversarial Network, which is where two networks effectively fight one another, To one is trying to fake the images, the other is trying to tell apart the fake from the real. They really spawned out of image uh, sound vision processing techniques. There was some later work around using a technique called softmax, which is where you can begin to get it to the network to understand categorical. Then you had Wasserstein GANs, Wasserstein GANs also coming into it for categorical. So we were very interested in that and we get some really interesting good results. So TGAN, Tabular GAN, by MIT research team, MedGAN as well, MIT research team, uh, uh, they were phenomenal pieces of engineering, really, really clever, really interesting work. And they were tested in the MIMIC data set, which is openly available medical data set that is basically as close to our records as you can get open source. It didn't really translate that well to our own internals. The reason the reason for in my mind that it was it was sort of falling down is Softmax can handle reasonably well up to probably about 500, possibly more um, categories or conditions. I could be wrong, the machine learning people will fight me on this. But from a practical standpoint, given the amount of conditions we had, the network was going into what's termed mode collapse, where it just can't find uh, any sort of minima or maxima. We then pivoted to variational autoencoders, which were the forerunners to GANs, which was Kingma and Wells, I believe in 2013, which was a really, really interesting concept. And we liked the idea of the latent space that we could perturb it and begin to build up custom distributions. Again, we, we exper- experimented with like multiple latent spaces, different categorization, different encoding methods. Uh, use word to vec to encode the conditions. I was using binary encoding. It was, I, was, I was using a fair amount to try and get this to work. In my mind, there's a lot of there's, there's phenomenal promise in GANs and VAs and VGAN hybrids. However, in a practical sense for non-image data, my recommendation for my work, and I'm by no means a machine learning expert, is the research is not there to implement it on a practical level for data as complex as medical. Now, colleagues at ONS, Dr. Ionis Kaliskampis and 
Dr. Yoshi have looked into and they've been able to synthesise census data using GANs so that his massive promise in there but given it's just myself that works on this and one human a deep learning research team does not make um, I couldn't deliver anything and there was also the privacy aspect around I can perturb probabilities I can mess around with the Gini index of random forest trees fairly easily I'm less inclined to get into the Z space of Vase or into perturbing GAN inputs and outputs. So I couldn't realistically guarantee privacy as much as I could well on methods, which is why we, we we ended up bending out. Where I think the greatest promise would be is in Google's Pixel RNN and Pixel CNN networks, um, and also the WaveNet networks, which although they're primarily generating for sound, I think if they were translated to medical image data or tabular data that was encoded in Mortivec form, it's an area of research I was really looking into, but I have to deliver product at the end of the day. True, yeah. Um, and I, I guess quite a few times the Alina approach is actually what works best. Uh, and as as the community knows is that, yeah, uh, GANs are not, um, are not too stable yet. We There's still a lot of research going on around how to stabilize GANs um, and so on. Okay, interesting. So um, so going back to the, to the results, so you've built this method that produces uh, synthetic health records of high quality uh, and without any significant privacy concerns. So how can this benefit uh, NHS, NSS, and how can this benefit Scotland in general? Well, how it can benefit NHS, NSS, there are really two ways we are hoping it can benefit us. The first is for our Idris team who are just have phenomenal knowledge and expertise in this area, but they're managing somewhere in the region of several thousand projects. So if we can in some way alleviate that. So if you are a junior researcher or a, you're only just conducting health research, they can then give you synthetic data to get trained up on or potentially even begin to pre-train your model before approaching them. The second benefit is both to Idris and information governance. We hope eventually that if you can demonstrate to us your code and you can also then have a clearer idea of I need variable A, B and C rather than A through Z. For us, that's a much more secure way of accessing information. You're then justifying to us why you need this information and why you don't need other information. So the, th those are really the two main benefits. And we actually get secondary benefits from the wider Scotland. So really the benefit for Scotland, first and foremost, is training. So like the DDI, uh, informatics schools, statistics schools, the reason being is there's a lot of really, really good data out there on the internet. To my mind, and I could be wrong in this, a lot of it is cleaned, it's pre-processed, and I've noticed that some of the, the, the training I sometimes see, it's very much, here's a Titanic data set, here's how to run regression, they'll calculate the mass of a black hole with Schwarz, you know, Schwarzkopf radiation. Um... Schwarzschild, sorry, apologies to astrophysicists. Um, you know, it's it's this uh, when you come out into the, the, the this uh, 
real world data is messy, it's complex, and even practical things like how do I load a several gigabyte file of data into R or Python if I don't have access to really, really heavy duty computing power? So that that's really the main benefit there is around training. The second benefit, and we hope, and it's, it's why we're making it open source, it's not just for code completeness, is we're hoping that other agencies, other companies will open up to this idea of if it's safe to release data, it means we can get things like hackathons, it benefits the Scottish economy. I mean, Kate Forbes, who's the Minister for the Digital Economy, has been speaking a lot around this idea of Scotland's a really, really phenomenal place to do data science. And I think if you spend even a second with Gillian Dockery, I think you're more than convinced that we really are phenomenal at this. So we want to enable that benefit by having a large data ecosystem out there. That would be the dream now, whether it happens or not, is both above my pay grade and my knowledge. But that, that that's really the main benefit is whether you're 5 or 95, there'll be data out there, we can train you, you can get a real feel for the complexities and the breadth of data and... If, if someone can come up with a, a new analysis or go on to do a, a qualification in data, that would be phenomenal for us, just knowing that we've in some way kind of helped with that. So that, that's really how it benefits Scotland. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So um, my next question is, and I, th- I think we've given our discussion, the answer is clear to this, but I would like to, to have your opinion. Do you believe that innovation can happen in the public sector? Because we're talking, we're talking about a very interesting, cutting-edge project, essentially, but many people might have another image in their heads about what is going on in the public sector. Really, really good question. And it's, it's something I chatted with my, my manager the other day, which is, if the public sector were in California, we would all be startups and we would be screaming at the top of our voice all the innovation we're doing. Unfortunately, in the public sector, we sometimes actually forget to tell people that we're actually doing these things. So, for example, I have colleagues who are working on new ways of reporting labs. There's SCRIS, which is a, a phenomenal data set around collecting diagnostic information, radiographic information and in cancer. So I think people sometimes associate innovation with cutting edge and we do we do cutting edge research for example this project and in conjunction with universities we really just forget to sometimes tell people that actually the innovation can sometimes be linked data set a b which will enable us to make a service better so there's there's de- innovation happens daily in the public sector it's just a case of sometimes we just forget to tell people yeah Great. So uh, where can people learn more about uh, your project and yourself? Any any upcoming talks or meetups? Or... Funny you should mention that. Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been really, really lucky and, uh, and I, I can't thank both the, the Data Lab themselves and Mark Parsons and Andrew Turner at EPCC for supporting me and giving the confidence to sort of put myself forward for it that I'm going to be speaking at Data Summit for a, a it's a short talk on synthetic data around how it can really benefit people, how it can benefit Scotland. So that'll be, I believe it's the Thursday, but we never know. So I'm, I'm there. Um, I regularly talk at, for example, Pi Data and the meetups. If anyone wants to get in contact with me, please, I'm, I am happy to chat data all day. 
I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Sweary Stats, S-W-E-A-R-Y-S-T-A-T-S, which is such an apt name when you Quite see me coding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, please feel free to reach out and, and ask any, any sort of questions. Um, I really want, want to make this open and accessible. We are hoping that post-committee approval and various checks and balances that we can get the code itself out in the January time period. That'll also include a mimic example so that people can get to grips with it. And we'll look for any feedback around both the code itself and accessibility. I mean, if, if you if you think that there's a need for like a large print version of it, please get in touch with us. Um, if I can't do it, I'll find someone who can make it either colour contrasted or larger print. I don't know if GitHub is these features built in, but you know any feedback is more than welcome. Apart from the fact that you don't like my cooking. That's, <laughs> that's a given feedback. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, thank you, Ian, for your time. Uh, good luck with uh, the next steps of the project and really looking forward to seeing your presentation at DataFest 2020 as well. Thank, thank you very much for having me and hope to see you in the future. <laughs>